I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi guys and welcome to Adulting. How exciting to be back for season four. I'm so grateful that you let me have a little break just to get all of these episodes pre-recorded for you because for this season we're doing something a little different. Each episode is going to be titled How To with my guest speaker influencing the topic either through their work, something they're passionate about or something they've been through. It's not necessarily instructional, but it's going to be nice overall understanding on that topic. And the first episode is with Alice A.D. And I'm so excited for you to listen to her. She is incredible. She's a photojournalist, documentary filmmaker and activist. And I know that I walked away from that conversation feeling so full of vim and vigor and ready to try and get out and make a bit of a difference and live a bit more consciously. And I hope that you do too. I hope you enjoy the episode. And please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Bye. Hi guys and welcome back to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Alice A.D. Have I said that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've already got the giggles. <laughs> be fine. We love a bit of giggling. Um, would you like to tell everyone what it is that you do or who you are or both? Um, so I am a photojournalist and documentary filmmaker. Um, I guess my focus is around like social impact stuff. So I've done a lot of work with the refugee crisis, most recently at FGM and environmentalism. Um, so yeah, I kind of combine my activism with visual journalism. Does that make sense? Is yeah, that- it makes sense. <laughs> I am kind of like high key obsessed with Alice because she is the woman that I would like to be, but instead I'm too busy posting selfies on Instagram. Um, and it shouldn't be about how we look, but just so you know, Alice is literally unreal and very <laughs> infrequently post pictures of herself. So I have gone oh through her God. whole Instagram to find the pictures of her. <laughs> but what I think is so fascinating, amazing. Well, first of all, you're an incredible photographer. Thank you. And you actually do real activism, which I think is quite rare in this age of collectivism. Um, a lot of us talk the talk, not many of us walk the walk, but you really do throw yourself into situations where you're in and amongst the real shit that's going on. What What's the most recent project that you've been working on? Or where have you been? Um, so, well, most recently I've actually been, normally I'm working abroad, but most recently I've been in London doing a lot of environmental activism. My mm. boyfriend got arrested a couple of weeks ago. It was always my dream to be with someone who had <laughs> been in the slammer, had a criminal <laughs> record. So that's been exciting. But um, abroad, so I most recently did a, a trip uh, where I went to visit uh, women who are on the front lines of um, anti-FGM activism. I keep saying FGM activism and oh, it's God. really a, it's anti-FGM <laughs> activism. And really no Gosh. laughing matter. But um, it was an unbelievable trip. I went out with a British Somali activist called Nimco Ali who mm. um, has herself had FGM. And so we, we did a two-week trip. We went to Kenya, um, the Gambia and Senegal. And it was really to document the work of the frontline activists who are these incredibly inspiring women. It sort of almost sounds like a cliche to come home from one of those trips and say, wow, the people were incredible. But these women are really remarkable. Um, And I guess the reason for that is 
to become an anti-FGM activist, a tradition that's been going on for, you know, as, as long as long as they can remember, you are going against your family, mm. your community, your societal norms. So the kind of strength of strength of character these women have, you know, I care way too much what people think of me to, yeah. to have that strength of will. So amazing work that they're doing, you know. And when I say frontline activism, they're literally, Josephine, the, the woman we were following in Kenya, she gets five phone calls, five phone calls a day, um, saying so so in Kenya the way FGM works it happens it's different in different countries but in Kenya FGM happens the day before the, the girls are married and that can be early marriage is a huge issue so it can be anything from seven eight nine ten years old so just quickly for those yeah. who don't know FGM is female genital mutilation that's okay and it's when they literally cut off your clitoris is it or is so it? there are three different types but yeah it can be anything from just cutting off the clitoris to cutting off the clitoris and sewing up cutting up some of the labia and sewing <laughs> it together so it's really um a horrible horrible practice and actually before I took on this project I was a bit nervous about approaching mm -hmm. it because you know even a friend of mine said well you know you're a white woman you shouldn't go uh, you know to Africa and and uh tell people what to do and tell them to stop FGM and so I was a bit apprehensive, but it was awesome being with Nimco, who, you know, I could ask her anything. And yeah. really, she really led me. And she sort of said, no, I hate this excuse of, oh, this is a traditional practice. This yeah. is a cultural practice because slavery was also a cultural practice. It doesn't make it morally right. And um, she sort of said to me, no, FGM is child abuse and it's gender based violence. And yeah. why would I why would you and I not have a right to care about that? Was it Nimco who said it was someone I listened to that said that they would have done it to their child had they not? realized was it Nimco? someone on the guilty feminist had it and they were like basically it was such a normal tradition in our family that i didn't and it wasn't until someone kind of showed me why it was so wrong that i would have done it to my daughter so the other issue is i guess especially in the uk when we see mothers or people doing it to their children and we kind of villainize them but actually they they are also under the impression that that's just tradition or it's good for the child or a hundred percent so they 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 know nothing else you know mm. it's a traditional um practice and that's also some of the issue in making change is the men um, who n normally sort of hold all positions of power sort of said, this FGM thing is nothing to do with us. Talk yeah. to the women. Um, so that's crazy. But Josephine, this amazing woman, she literally does like education programs where she goes into villages and she asks every the, the leaders um, to say clitoris and all their local dialects. And it's just absolutely amazing. So she physically will get a call. She'll go and rescue these girls and take oh them gosh. to the center. And she told me this thing that's just really stuck with me because I found it so funny. So if she doesn't personally go to rescue the girls, she'll send a colleague of hers from the Samburu Girls Foundation, um, the foundation she set up. And always once she's rescued a girl, she'll try and go back to the village to explain what, what, why they did what they did, right. why FGM should be stopped. And um, she says that always people think she's this like old fat woman who's never had any of her own kids. You know, she's like cursed. She, they don't understand why she would possibly want to stop FGM. And she walks in and she is just the most beautiful six foot two, you know, Maasai woman. And of course, that was you know, the most important evidence I saw that you, the funding needs to go to these frontline activists who are from those communities yeah. who themselves are going to explain why FGM should be stopped, not the sort of middlemen, massive NGOs where foreigners yeah. go in. 
Um, so in that sense, it was yeah, a remarkable trip and just to, to document that work was really cool. That is incredible. And I guess you are going in as a journalist side as well as the activist. So you're actually documenting for other people to see. Coming off the back of a little bit of what you're saying, I guess I'm just interested because this has come up a lot recently, but with the terms of like white saviorism and yeah. travel and stuff, where what's your opinion on kind Stacey of the way it. that we normally see well not I don't I see I don't really say Stacey because I just don't think it's anything to do with her really oh I don't know what do you think um I think I'm very aware that I don't want to come across as like the Stacey Dooley thing is I often look at those photos of people and I say you can go to Africa and not take yeah. a selfie with a young um African child yes. like that is possible mm-hmm. I do it all the time and I'm very <laughs> conscious to not take those kind of images because those perpetuate these um stereotypes right um, I'm very sort of conscious of not getting it, get, getting it wrong. Like, I hope I don't get it wrong. In this sense, with this trip, it was great being with Nimco because she really sort of guided me. Um, but certainly in journalism, there's like a huge representation issue of like a lot of journalists. Most journalists are not only Oxbridge educated, but most are white. Yeah. So recently, I'm not sure the exact stats, so please forgive me if I get it wrong, but there's these big photo journalism awards called the World Press Photo. And... What was remarkable this year was there were many more women were nominated for the award, which was great. Yeah. But out of the six um, nominees, all the subjects of the photographs were black and brown people, people of color. Oh. Um, so that is still a massive, massive mm. issue in journalism. And I'm really conscious of that in my own work as well. You know, I've photographed the refugee crisis. I often work abroad. I very rarely work at home. So I'm really focused on making sure there's a balance in my own work yeah. and you know that's something I can really improve and and others can too like we're definitely not there in terms of um, journalism but always it's always on my mind like I did a trip to Somaliland to cover the drought and photojournalism out of East Africa kind of fulfills all these stereotypes of like poverty porn and yeah. you know if the images the photojournalism is always uh, you know yeah poverty or most recently a lot of famine so I thought how can I take a different set of images um and so I took out a black backdrop and I used a fashion lighting so sort of more Mm -hmm. editorial style of photography to create um hopefully what I hoped were sort of empowering portraits and I like the use of this portable studio because without the backdrop there wasn't actually the context in which these people lived so you as the audience are completely focused on the Mm -hmm. subject and I guess the aim with that was And I found this a lot um, covering the refugee crisis is I think the moment you recognize the context and you're like, wow, that's kind of happening over Mm. there, you remove yourself from any responsibility. Um, And so I hoped with these images, these portrait, this portrait series that you're it's really just about the the subject and hopefully to build some empathy with that person. It's so fascinating. You're so right as well, because whenever we see a refugee who has come over to England and been here for a while now and then working, everyone gives them so much credence. And we're like, oh, my God, it's amazing. You're a refugee. But you see people in refugee camps and suddenly they become numbers and statistics rather than individuals. So I completely agree with that when you strip out the backdrop. With the work that you're doing like in your journalism, yeah. do you are you called out? Why isn't there much talk about what goes on at home? Because I did a podcast I need to put out with No White Saviors last year and didn't put it out once the sound quality wasn't good and two I was worried that it might be slightly controversial mm. and they were just like why is it that you feel we because I've done volunteering when I was 18 I yep. went to South America and there are pictures of me on my Facebook with a load of children of colour and I'm there at 18 years old thinking I'm being really helpful I explained to my parents the day they're like but you did help and I'm like not really because I went there for six weeks I might have taught them something but the money that cost me to get that I'd be better off putting it into funding for them to get 
a teacher from Ecuador rather than me going in and disrupting their um, months or whatever. Um, and they were like, why do why do we not have more draw to do things at home? And it's so true. Like I could go up to Lambeth Town Council and look to volunteer at home. And are the stories not there? Or? They absolutely are. And that's we all need to improve on that front. There's this. Um, there's recently a film, I don't know if you saw it, about one of my heroes, of a Sunday Times journalist called Marie Colvin. Yeah. She was very famous for having an eye patch um, because she had uh, some shrapnel caught in her eye and made her blind. Um, unbelievable woman, unbelievable journalist. But there was a Hollywood, there was a great documentary made about her called Under the Wire, which I really recommend to anyone, um, which kind of tracks the, the days leading up to her um, death. She was bombed, targeted by the Syrian government. Um, and then there's a Hollywood film that's come out called A Private War. And I thought it was so disappointing because it sort of brought up all these stereotypes about journalists, the sort of heavy drinking, sex obsessed, mm. all, all this stuff. But it reminded me of these tropes that we have about journalism, which I am really uncomfortable with and seems so outdated now of, you know, shining a light in the dark and giving people without a voice a voice. And I think... What's so amazing about the internet and social media is that actually we've moved beyond that. I mean, we can elevate voices, sure, mm -hmm. but everyone has a voice. Yeah. So like in my work, I'm sharing stories and, and maybe I'm, I'm trying to elevate voices, but those voices very much already exist. And the women I just visited, you know, the activists, if, if I can sort of elevate their voices, that, that's great. But yeah, let's move beyond this idea of having to be a white person and, and yeah. go to... And, and now everyone has an, uh, a way to share their stories, right? They all have access to the internet. And that's what's amazing. There have been improvements in journalism. Like, it has been a massively democratizing tool um, for everyone to be able to tell their own stories. They don't need to rely on the traditional gatekeepers of, yeah. you know, a white Sunday Times journalist going into your country. So, yeah, it's How definitely positive. How did you get to being one where you are and what drove you to want to be in this particular area of journalism? Have you always had this desire or was it something that happened upon you? Um, so I've always wanted to be, I always wanted to be a war photographer. So Amazing. as long as I can remember, I think 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, I think I, there was a short stint I wanted to be in the army and um, fly helicopters, but I don't think my eyesight was good enough and I surely got over that. But yeah, I wanted to be a war photographer and sort of massively romanticized it way into my teens. Um, at university, I studied politics and history, hoped that I could come out and sort of do some sort of visual journalism mm. based on my interests in sort of politics and foreign affairs. And I read a book when I was 19 by a woman, an American photojournalist called Lindsay Adario um, called It's What I Do, which I really, really recommend about her um, life, really. And her, her, she's been kidnapped three times, so wow. she's just got this incredibly compelling story. Um, and she was my hero, really, and I, I based all my ambitions on that. And then when I came out of university, I headed to Calais, the refugee camp, the jungle, thought I would volunteer for two days, um, stayed for much longer, went on after that to a camp in Greece on the Macedonian border. Um, I don't know if you remember those incredibly dramatic images of Syrian refugees arriving mm -hmm. on Greek shores and then walking up to Germany. So this was sort of just after that, all the um, the Balkan route had sort of closed their doors. And so there was a camp I was in called Idomeni um, on the recently closed Macedonian border, 15,000 people. And I joined a group of friends. We started a group. Um, well, I didn't start it. I joined them right as soon after they started it called Hot Food Idomeni. And we cooked 7,000 meals a day, these sort of dolls and these wow. huge, um, I don't even know what you call them, massive sort of tubs with r almost rowing oars to stir the doll. 
Um, and I was there for a few months, couldn't uh, stay away really. It was seemed so kind of, at that point, it was really an emergency situation. Mm -hmm. Now the refugee crisis has moved into more sort of long-term refugee camps, which has, you know, a host of um, issues in that. But so I was there and every day this food would arrive for us to cook. And I sort of didn't, I was just so in the thick of it, you know, it was two distributions a day, we were working so hard, I didn't think, wait, where's this food coming from? Who's paying for this? And one day, these three women came, and they told me the story of the NGO that they'd set up, it was called Help Refugees. Oh, wow. And they told me this incredible story, and I'll never forget it. So a few months prior, there was a photo of Alan Kurdi, the young Syrian boy who was washed up on Greek shores. Um, and they decided, they saw this image, and they felt compelled to do something about it. So they wanted to raise, um, I think it was £1,000 or something, and drive a van full of donations down to the camp in Calais, in France. Within a week, they raised £50,000. We're getting so many donations, they had to open an Amazon wish list, opened a warehouse in the UK, and then shortly after went down to Calais and started to support the warehouse there. And when they arrived in Calais, they were shocked to see, um, it's kind of an irony, so France never declared um, the Calais jungle as a humanitarian emergency. Mm. So some of the big, bigger players... Um, weren't there that they expected to see so they dropped everything and they um, fully committed to this and within a few months they were the largest grassroots organization in mm -hmm. Calais and then shortly across Europe and they had been supporting this group that I was working in this grassroots organization in this camp at many and I never forgot this story and I stayed in touch with them and um, over the months of my volunteering I'd been there primarily as a volunteer but I did have a camera around my neck and this was a time where, um, you know, there was very derogatory language being used about refugees. David Cameron was talking about swarms of migrants. Mm. It was a very politicized issue. And I, you know, it was my first time in a situation like this, but I was really watching how the journalists were operating. I'd had such an interest in journalism. And through no fault of their own, necessarily, you know, journalists can be sent out for two days. Um, and particularly the photographers, they're keen for action. You know, mm. they, want the, they want the tear gas. They want a strong image. And I sort of felt really upset about that. And I, I realized having these, the luxury of a few months volunteering gave me the opportunity to really get to know people. And so right at the beginning, I had absolutely no confidence to take photos. You know, what right did I have to take photos? Mm -hmm. These people living in quite terrible conditions. No confidence, did not feel I had the right. Um, and then slowly over time, as I built personal relationships, it sort of became easier. So I had this, these images, they lived on my hard drive for about a year. Um, but then I slowly started to work with the girls from Help Refugees um, to publish those images. I started an Instagram account where I started to share these stories. Um, and slowly but surely, it sort of started to become a, a professional thing. Wow. They started to be published in newspapers. And then I think a big turning point was a few months following my time in Greece, um, I met these two Guardian journalists through Help Refugees and they were writing a story about Help Refugees' work and how U the European Union was mismanaging funds. Um, and they needed sort of access to families in Greece. By this point, all the informal camps became more formal military-run camps but sort of hidden away in these awful kind of industrial warehouses on the outskirts of cities in Greece. And I would take them in, see families. We'd often have to sort of jump over walls and things, secretly get in. Um, and through meeting them uh, the following week, they put an image that I'd taken of a girl called Yamaha, who I'd followed for months, um, put her on the front cover of The Guardian. And that was part of a campaign for supporting child refugees that Christmas. And it became the most successful fundraising campaign wow. The Guardian had ever done. 
So that was a real turning point where this very unprofessional thing became mm. a bit more professional and I kind of felt really committed to the power of the image and, and how that could have really tangible impact. Sorry, no, blabbing on. Oh, that. that listening to <laughs> you, I'm so me. inspired by you. I think you're absolutely <laughs> incredible, and I, I can't imagine. First, did you know how? To, did you, did you do photography? How are you so? No, sp- I didn't. So oh I. Oh God, you're just one of those people. You're amazing. <laughs> no, I just, I had no idea what I was doing, and that was part of my lack of confidence. You know, yeah. I literally had no idea what I was doing. Didn't know what aperture was. Didn't know what shutter speed was. But just so committed to. To doing it, I guess. I don't know. But I was terrible at the start. I mean, genuinely, I'm embarrassed by my photos at the start. What was it that at 11, 11 to 13 that you said that was when you first got... I mean, I think I was busy trying to cut the hair off my sister's barbies. Like, what, <laughs> what, what, where did that come from? Have you got a very strong feminist mother? Have you got something... Um, you- I think I was really inspired, actually, by my aunt who worked for uh, the UN. Mm. And I have just remember stories of that and I was just totally in awe of her. And I don't know what, what my that moment, eureka moment was at 11 or 12, but certainly mm-hmm. reading Lindsay's book um, when I was about 19 just kind of totally solidified it. Now I realise having a few years of experience, I massively romanticise that whole world. Yeah. Um, so I've moved away from wanting to do sort of frontline conflict journalism sort of breaking news images to wanting to do long-term documentary projects yeah. where I really can give the subjects the time they deserve maybe do under underreported stories um, and that's in part through you know my experience covering the refugee crisis and seeing how journalists operate and how predatory it can be you know yeah. it's a really um it's it's I sort of one of my other heroes is a photographer called Don McCullen and he's got an exhibition at the Tate at the moment and I guess um those those kind of um, stereotypes that I talked about, about shining a light in the dark, for him when he went to the front line in Vietnam and he was maybe one or two photographers, the images he sent back really had a monumental impact mm. in, in kind of bringing the end of the Vietnam War, for example. Um, now it's so different. You know, everyone can take an image. Then yeah. um, I had friends who were in Iraq at the most Battle of Mosul and, you know, he sent me a photo that there's five photographers on one roof. Mm. taking the same image desperate you know there's so many more freelancers now so the industry has totally changed and I think that reminds me of how important it is to do under underreported stories yeah. in a really kind of respectful um, way and give it the time that it deserves it's a really interesting junction isn't it because I remember I can't remember what, it, what story it was but it was a time when actually it might have been when I was at uni and we were all reading up about how there was something going on on Twitter before it got to the news and I can't remember if there was like, it, I was at Union Cardiff and I think there was just like, um, I think it was the bomb scare or something. We were oh, like, it's wow. so fascinating that people just in the street are telling you, they're reporting it prior to the reporters. And I guess that's what you're talking about. Like, you can't break that first story now because it's going to be someone there ready with that iPhone. Totally. Which I think is ultimately really positive. Yeah. You know, it, it goes, goes back to that thing I've said of dem- the democratisation of the news and citizen journalism. Mm. Like, we, and, and that's really great for uh, fact checking and accountability and stuff. Um, so I think that is a really positive thing. It's just in terms of what is my personal role yeah. in this industry. Um, and I think I also realised that photos are not enough. And mm. that's why I'm moving a lot into documentary film, yeah. because I guess that allows you the time to see the nuance and situations, not just the black and white or not just the headline. Yeah. Um, and how important it is to sort of yeah slow journalism and take your time and tell stories. And you you use social media in a very positive way. And I, I, I guess it must be like multiple fold, but 
do you think that because you spend so much of your time in really difficult situations with people with such imp- um, impoverished or un- bad luck, that how does that how has that changed your relationship with our way of living? Like, do you feel that you've kind of emancipated your, yourself a little bit from like I probably got consumed about stupid things about like which pair of trainers look cool? Do you think that that's changed your relationship with those kind of things? <laughs> do you know? What no, I, mean? I still feel those pressures. I mean, I wish I didn't, but I, you know, I care as much as the next person how I look and and all that stuff. It's 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 almost shocking that it hasn't changed me more. Mm. I think that's that shows how much pressure we're under, especially as girls. Um, and women but it certainly um, has shaped the way that I've used social media so I really see my I I became very preoccupied with um, what we were seeing on our feeds you know Mm. just for Instagram as I saw my role as kind of reminding the world you know of some of the real issues that are happening beyond our day-to-day concerns yeah Um, I also think there's a problem with how we consume the kind of images I take on social media because you know, I'm preoccupied by this idea of desensitization. If we're consuming a, you know, I follow CNN, let's mm. say The Guardian, whatever, and, and sometimes there can be really shocking images. But the way that we consume those images, imagine I go from like Beyonce to a cat meme to a bombing in Syria. Does that, how does that impact mm. my um, my view of that image or how much it affects me? And I certainly with the refugee crisis, I think we became so desensitized to these images that's still happening of of refugees, you know, crossing the Mediterranean mm. on boats. Um, and that's really worrying. The flip side of that is I think social media is the most amazing tool to, to share news, to start campaigns, to make impact. Um, and I'm, you know, my own journey and trajectory has been solely um, sort of, I, I have to give great credit to like Insta- mm. platforms like Instagram because that's where I share sto- stories. That's where I share my images. Um, so it's been really, really powerful, I think. Yeah, I think it definitely is a great way to enact change and to draw, pull away from maybe very, as you say, like it's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about that before, the way that a journalist goes in, takes one photo, and that's your whole story just from a one second image, which is not representative. Exactly. Um, and now you're talking about you're moving, starting to do more environmentalism. Well, I don't know. Did you start as a humanitarian and then it's that's driven you towards environmentalism or how did that come about? <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, I was mainly focused on sort of uh, social justice mm. issues. Although, you know, environmentalism is, I'm learning more and more is, is a social justice issue. I learned a crazy statistic and I really hope it's, hope it's right, but I um, read it the other day that um, 99% of climate change-related deaths occur in the least developed nations, uh, which is a category of nations, mm. and yet those same nations have only contributed to 1% of carbon emissions. Um, so environmentalism, I guess, is really tied mm. in with the rest of my work. Um, but I've really only come to it recently, and that's mm. in part my um, boyfriend, who I actually met in Calais in, in the jungle two years ago, um, that was his huge, you know, he he makes films online and um, he really dedicated himself to environmentalism. So I've really learned a lot through mm-hmm. him. It wasn't one of my um, concerns, really, shockingly. Yeah. I hadn't, I think I'd engaged with it sort of on an intellectual level. I'd kind of read the statistics. But like a lot of people still, I think I was totally in denial mm-hmm. um, and and didn't engage with it on an emotional level. Like I say to him often... You know, if I read a, a piece about like sexual assault, that it makes mm. me, f- my whole body feel enraged. And I, I'd never felt that kind of level of fear and anger about environmentalism until really recently. Um, so, yeah. 
I, I don't think that's shocking at all. I think, for one, you take up a lot of emotional labor and space doing the work that you do. A lot of people aren't as emotionally involved with their career. It tends to be something you can leave at home, whereas yours is already taking up a huge portion of what you do. So I don't think that it's any slight on you that you hadn't also decided to be like ahead of environmentalism as well. Because I get this question a lot when it comes to feminism and people are like, you should be vegan because that is inherently a feminist issue. And I'm getting there and it's interesting, but it's also that time of like, you've also got to live <laughs> and survive and, and applying yourself so selflessly. I mean, you seem like you're a very extrinsically motivated person. Everything you do is very outside of yourself. Um, what, well, what, one thing I'd say is like, we all have our different, I hate calling it a eureka moment, but we all have some that moment, mm. right? My brother was vegan for years. Oh, really? I did not even think about it. I mean, yeah. it just was not in my consciousness. I did not put two and two together. So people will get there, you mm. know, and I don't think sort of shouting at them is is, is going to make yeah. it any different. So, you know, everyone come and if you you have to fight, pick your battles as well. You know, you can't spread yourself thin. Yeah. You know, if your thing is feminism, then there's there's no shame in that at all. Um, I I don't know if I am intrinsically motivated <laughs> in everything I do. I think if my work has impacted me in any way, it has made me angry, mm. more angry than I sort of have ever been before and more aware of kind of, it sounds so grandiose, but sort of in the injustices. And, and that is motivating. Anger fuels you yeah. like nothing else, you know. Anger gets you out of bed. Um, I think every time I am really smiling. By the way, it sounds so weird that I'm talking about anger, <laughs> anger in a sort of you know not a passionate in a, way, in a passionate yeah. way, not in a not in a resentful way. But my every day, I'm like, come on, we can make this but world better. I think about this all the time. Like purpose gives you so. If you don't have a purpose, if you don't have a drive, your life really loses meaning. And I do find it interesting because I do know that I need to be more environmentally engaged. And I, what I find so fascinating is the cognitive dissonance between like I will watch stuff that you post or that like I remember your your boyfriend actually posted something and it was like. He might have reposted The Guardian. I can't remember, but it was like we're the first people to know the impact that we're making on on the on the environment, and we're the last people that can make a difference about it. And that actually, I had like a visceral reaction to that for the first time. And then, like about an hour later, I'd completely forgotten. Yeah. And what's so interesting is there are people that can be so um, politically engaged there, and then the other half of the world just have no idea. And I think it's you've got to just forget because I think what draws us back in so often, especially with veganism and stuff, it's like well. But they're still buying a steak, so... And I think I swing back and forth between that, oh, my God, we've got to do something, and then, like, 50% of the people in my life don't even think to buy a reusable cup. I sound that as if that's, like, so... I can't believe you haven't got a reusable <laughs> cup. But it is that, and it's when you see... And, and how do you... Do you think that it's a product of your environment, literally, that the people around you as well are so um, focused on these goals that help that helps you to be... Massively, I think... You know, ha um, having Jack and the, and the people we've met through this movement, mm. we've been in involved with a group called Extinction Rebellion. And, it, you know, you said you reacted emotionally to that one sentence. Mm. And though an hour later you've forgotten it, you've remembered it now, mm. right? And so I think bit by bit it does yeah. chip away at you. And I've now gone to, because I've engaged with it, it, it kind of is a decision. It's like I was in denial. I totally ignored it and looked mm. away. And now that I've kind of engaged with it, um, and kind of sort of stared the issue in the face. It really does scare me. And um, I've gone to multiple talks and there are all these you know, these things that really emotionally engage you. Like, do you want to be a bystander or do you want to do something yeah. about it? Um, but 100% I'm motivated by the the, the people around me. Um, I really 
would have continued, I think, to to not kind of acknowledge the issue yeah. without them. But certainly engage engaging with it as a sort of social justice issue yeah. um, made a huge difference for me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That's another, so how do you deal with, because the other thing I get around to is we have these conversations, or like I think about this in my book club because we sit there and we talk about problems, but all of us are university educated, probably white, probably middle class, um, talking about the world's problems as if we're going to put them to rights. And when it comes to things like climate change and stuff in my our little echelon of society that's like got enough time, money and energy to be thinking, talking and educated about it, obviously we can posit these ways of doing stuff, but how do we... How do we discuss it in a way that it um, permeates privilege? Like, how can we, or is it the responsibility of the privilege to try and create a way that everyone can have a, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it's course. so hard to. Um, so firstly, it is a, you're totally right. It's an incredibly white middle class movement. Um, and I wish it wasn't, right? Because mm. climate change is is not going to. exclusive. I mean, it's not going to be exclusive. And we always talk about climate change as if it's something happening will that will happen in the future you know there was a recent IC, ipcc report which said we have 12 years mm. to say you know to to stop um the sort of temperature rise but climate change and i've seen this through my work is already happening to the most poor in the yeah. world like it's this irony that um it's as i've said it's affecting those who have least have done least to cause mm. it um and i've seen that i went i made a film in um an island called kiribati in the south pacific where at its highest point um it's two meters above sea level and it's one of the most uh, remote it's actually a sort of collection of islands most remote nation in the world um and there i mean it's indiscriminate and the sea levels are rising and they mm. that nation will be the first to go underwater um it was really interesting to see this year with the california wildfires sort of suddenly climate change came to really some of the most privileged people in the world mm. and everyone it really shook everyone to their core but um you know Climate change is a reality and it's affecting loads of people. It's just whether we wake up to it, um, it's going to affect us all yeah. to different um, degrees. But also the other thing is, I, you know, it always strikes me that right-wing politicians who are super, well, in general, tend to be more anti-immigration mm. are not incredibly concerned by um, climate change because the mass yeah. migration that is going to be caused by rising temperatures is going to be monumental. I mean, we've called this um, refugee crisis yeah. a crisis, but it's the numbers are so incredibly small compared to the migration that's happening within Africa right now, um, let alone what's going to arrive in, in Europe. I remember really one of my most clever friends who actually is the reason I started the book club because she used to teach me everything and she buggered off to Columbia to do something really helpful for the world. Um, and she told me eight ages ago about this book that she'd read years and years ago about how, like, um, this rise in heat is going to be the biggest problem with um, immigration humanity and when are we going to make the decision I remember like no that's never going to happen she was like well we'll have to make the decision to shut off our borders if we keep increasing climate change because 
what do you do? Do you have everyone on one tiny island? And I remember being like, that's never going to happen. And she said this to me a few years ago about a book she'd read five years ago. And even, I watched a documentary about Prince Charles. I'm not remotely a royalist, but it was very interesting. <laughs> and it was him in the 70s being like, we need to stop using um, plastic. Like one time you use plastic. Wow. And there's just so much, it's been there the whole time. And I think it is what you're saying. It's There is that, idea isn't that I think is that if it's something's like more than 50 years in the future it's really hard for humans to process any kind of attachment to it because like evolutionary wise we find it really difficult to think that far ahead yeah but I think it's been so intangible mm. not only because some of the issues environmentally been, have been happening really far away but also we're talking about a future that we can't really imagine mm. um and I think every argument under the sun has been used you know this is your this is our kids future this is I was at um, a protest at Last week or two weeks ago was Inter International Petroleum Week, which is where all those sort of biggest names in the oil and gas industries come for a conference. Um, and, you know, the science, the, the science tells us that we need to drastically reduce, I mean, ultimately completely stop, but obviously that can't happen overnight, removing fossil fuels. You know, mm. two thirds of fossil fuels need to stay in the ground. And yet, um, you know, ExxonMobil and some of the other big corporations are planning multi-trillion dollar investments. Um, I came face to face with the, and I love this job title, he was the head of exploration at Total. Um, and exploration literally means, you know, going into new finding. countries and finding new oil. The fact that we are even looking, looking is unbelievable. Yeah. Collectively, the biggest corporations in oil and gas are spending only 1% on renewable mm. energy, which is shocking. It is. And of course, you know, a lot of the um, comments I'll get was, well, you, you, you drive a car and you fly, and I, I fly more, more than most people I know, you know, for my work. Um, but in a way, we need to get beyond this argument of, like, pointing fingers yeah. because, and this happens a lot with veganism too, and, and I really disagree with this approach, is you can't have to be a perfect mm. vegan and a perfect environmentalist Otherwise, no one will be. That group will remain incredibly exclusive and we won't get anywhere. Surely, if we want more vegans, it's make it a more flexible yeah. approach. You say, try and eat less meat and, 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 you know, fly less. And the other thing is we have been told for far too long that we need to switch off our lights, have shorter showers as a resolution to climate change. And, and though this whole plastic debate has been absolutely crucial and, of course, single-use plastics, uh, we have to stop using them, you know, again, these massive PR-protected mm. companies are convincing individuals that the, deci the decisions and responsibility lie with them when actually yeah. this has to be government and corporation-led. I mean, we need more government regulation. And though there are moves for improvement, but it's not happening fast enough. But it is, it's that onus put on the individual to make you feel guilty and then you never do anything about it. And I completely agree about this. The minute I think the minute you stand for something, people then can't believe that you are not as you say like the perfect bastion of whatever that thing is that you said you're going to do and I noticed that with my social media so I'll say something about feminism and someone will be like but you have fake eyelashes and I'm like but I'm trying to at least I'm trying like mm. and then someone it's the minute you put your head above the parapet and say I actually might think this is slightly important people were so desperate to put people into binary labels and terms I even think like my guy friend's so my boyfriend, if I say, he's actually so good. I don't want to vilify him because he's so great. He's really famous. Like, I've got him into, like, drinking different milks and stuff. But if I say to him, would you ever go vegan? He's just like, no. But he slowly is has made so many changes. But it's just the word is so terrifying, so alienating to so many people mm. that actually it means you kind of, you stop before you even 
even get there. And people won't talk about it no. publicly because they, they're scared that a mate yeah. will say, oh, well, I saw you have an egg yesterday yes. or something. And that's so unhelpful. And I really passionately believe that this fear of being called a hypocrite in terms of the environmental movement has massively paralyzed mm -hmm. it. Because if it wasn't like this, if people weren't so keen to the moment you talk about something regarding environmentalism to sort of point the finger or drag you down, we would have the people in society that hold the most social currency for better or worse. Mm. Models, actors, celebrities would have joined this movement. Yeah. Um, and that is is what I think will make the difference and that this movement requires that energy and, and, the, and those people of influence. But so far... It's really, really difficult. But it's because that's putting a name to it. I guess the people that... Because I even said... Funny enough, I was walking around Brockwell Park with my boyfriend. He was saying the same thing about oil and all these problems. And I was like, but why would these people want to do it? And he was like, because they're absolutely loaded. And for the rest of their lives, they'll live the best... They couldn't give a shit if the world blows up in 300 years because they'll have lived their best life. And they're nameless. We don't know who these people are. We know the names of the corporations. We have no idea who the guy sat at the top of that throne is. But we do know who the famous actor is or who that person on social media is and we can blame them which is what's so sick about it that's one of the discussions um i have a lot of my friends in this movement is who is climate change mm. you know um that's sort of the biggest baddest bosses as you say these people that we wouldn't recognize in the street that aren't you know we would could probably find out who they are but they're not well-known figures they have been protected has massively benefited them mm. but we don't know them as individuals we don't know where to point the finger at the moment in terms of the movement because who is climate change? Who are these climate criminals? Um, and that's why we were protesting specifically at International Petroleum Week. Yeah. Extinction Rebellion, this um, activist group, have been criticised for their strategy. You know, they swarm streets for 10-minute periods and people are saying, why are you pissing off East London cabbies who are trying to do their work? Yeah. Um, and whether or not you agree with the strategy, um, they have brought a lot of energy to this movement and started conversations. And that specific action against International Petroleum Week was targeting literally some of um, the individuals, the climate mm. criminals that we're talking about. So I think that was quite effective and powerful. And what other, because I guess we, we see the word activism bounding about a lot. I try not to use it in relation to what I do because I don't do activism, even though people who on the other side of it would be like very misandrous activist person but you actually do get in the front line as it were and you are being active how do you how important and integral is that to your work and how much of an impact do you think that activism has and should we all be aiming to be a bit more activist because you brought up earlier about the bystander idea how much does that shape what you're doing at the minute someone asked me recently um if they thought it was an increasing trend in journalism that journalists and photojournalists will sort of attach themselves to particular campaigns there's been a few photojournalists that I really admire will literally start foundations and movements and online communities so it were around issues that they have come across in their work and my work has been deeply interlinked with activism I'm not sure how mm. conventional that is or how what the ethics are you know I think normally as a journalist you're meant to be objective now I don't think you can ever be objective in journalism I think ultimately journalism is a form of activism I think mm. you know if journalists weren't doing frontline activism if they if they were yeah if they if they weren't doing journalism they would be doing frontline activism because they are trying to hold people to account sort of it is a type of activism and it's absolutely crucial um I don't know what I'm meant to be doing I don't know if it's wrong or right but I think using my online platform to be able to talk about these issues. It just came naturally to me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's incredibly important. 
I don't want to be a bystander. Um, I often think, what will my kids think is completely outrageous about yeah. my lifetime? Um, and that can sort of change day to day. But certainly I think the, um, the fact that it's not illegal to do the environmental damage that has been done will seem kind of baffling to our mm. kids. You know, hopefully by that point, if we get our act together, we'll be living on a much cleaner planet and it will seem really bizarre that it's not illegal, right? Yeah. It's not illegal right now to yeah. do damage to our planet. Um, and obviously the level of sexism and, and sexual violence against women, I, I hope, will be um, on a much more level playing field. But I always remind myself, like, when I look back, at the past, I want to be able to say that at least I tried to do something mm. about it. And that's what drives a lot of the, the work that I do. That, that sounds so make, pretentious. No, it I'm doesn't. So I actually got a bit teared up so I, No, it doesn't because I completely agree and I think about it all the time. I always think about veganism because I'm like, when I do, I'm out. Because I don't really buy stuff. But when I go out, I will literally go to town on tapas and have like pig's cheek. Awful. Yeah. <laughs> and I will sit there and I'll be like, I wonder if, I think that all the time. I'm like, I wonder if my kids are like, you're sick. I can't believe that you ate that or oh, something. It's fascinating It is so What will they look at us and think? how did you I know or like homelessness how yeah. mum how how did you walk past someone literally mm. lying on the street when it could have not been that way you no, know I do I have yeah, I find homelessness so difficult but we're so desensitized that is a level of desensitization mm. isn't it we're used we're used to it these yeah. are the images we're used to in it and we can totally remove ourselves well I think it's the dehumanizing as well it's kind of going I'm better than you because I'm walking down the street and you're sat on it whereas it's like where have you got that sense of entitlement that you're not going to be on the street next week totally um and the same thing with the way that we view refugees it's like well it's us versus them it's not it's just a game of luck and like 100%. how you got there uh, yeah it's a total game of lottery like whether you're born in um i often think about we talk a lot about privilege white privilege all these conversations um and what but what about the inherited privilege of your nationality and mm. your passport that i mean that it is a game of luck whether you're born in london uh, or, or in, in Sudan yeah. and how much does that impact the, your deck of cards and, and the way that your life plays out that is an inherited privilege Hugely. and I oh, think about it so much when we're talking about Brexit and immigration and stuff is these need to be framed mm. as inherited privilege you know we tax inherited wealth not enough but you know we talk about um, white privilege now again only just starting mm. but I really look forward to a time we talk about our, our nationality yeah definitely and even the way that we that nationalism as well that idea that we belong to this land and we have it better but especially when you put it into context and as you're saying like the poorest places the place being impacted the hardest and yet we're saying you can't we've fucked you over but you can't come and stay with us yeah. like that's Awful. That, this happened a lot with the conversations around the refugee crisis is this distinction between refugees and economic migrants. And economic migrants is a really kind of confusing and very derogatory term, I think. I mean, within the European Union thus far, as long as we, we don't leave, um, we move from country mm. to country for economic reasons, for economic opportunity, for a job. You know, people, a lot of people come to London, we go to other countries in the European Union. What's People are doing moving from sub-Saharan Africa, whether or not they fled war, they are seeking a better life. Yeah. They fled maybe poverty or lack of employment. Um, and how can we vilify someone mm. for trying to make the most of their lives? Will so you true. and I do that on a daily basis? Yeah, if I moved to America, nobody would be like, oh my God, I can't believe she's done that. That's awful. N would never happen. No. Never happen. And even, oh, I don't know if I should bring up to me, but begging, but I'm going to get there again. What do you like? First of all, I'm 100% of the opinion that if she was white, she would be here, for the, first of all. Um, I don't know, it's difficult because it's not really the same area, but like this kind of this kind of 
there's so many parts of the the the, the unrest with immigration and that kind of racist ideal uh, racist trope is playing into these other problems regarding like ISIS and and then like religious unrest and the way that we're vilifying um, Islam and with among your works you feel like everything is just playing into showing us that if the more we segregate people the more problems we cause does that have a <laughs> such a big question <laughs> I'm actually going to talk about um, Shamima tonight so I feel I've been much more informed where is that it's at the Frontline Club do you want to come oh my god yeah, have you heard about it? the Frontline no. Club it's cool it's got some good talks can I come Jones. yeah absolutely oh my god I'm sorry I don't have a ticket but the, oh, uh, that one. apparently there's um, no it's fully booked oh. but everyone always drops out so let's go <laughs> okay. I've How always done that <laughs> so I feel I'll be much more armed to sort of answer your question um, I think a lot of people spoke to me about it given my work with refugees I think that a distinction clearly needs to be made between Shamima, who joined ISIS, and, um, you know, refugees who are genuinely fleeing. Mm. Should, do I think her citizenship should have been revoked? Absolutely not. That's completely illegal. Mm. Um, we found out yesterday that her baby has yeah. passed away. Um, I think the lumping together, yeah. you know, um, the the one narrative, the the stories painted with one brushstroke around ISIS members and the the Muslim people in general yeah. is incredibly damaging, mm. um, and that 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 was the thing that was always on my mind when I'm photographing refugees and working with Help Refugees. This amazing organisation is everyone has a different story. Um, let's highlight that everyone has their own narrative. They're individuals. They're not just a stack of numbers mm. and statistics. Yeah, sorry, that was such a tricky one to start out to you, but it's just so, it just feels like from all angles, it's just popping us up and showing us actually how drastically awful some of the decisions that we're making. Yeah. Um, on a slightly lighter note, but still really shitty, fast fashion is a really interesting one, which I know that you you don't really go there, do you, at all? I, I'm ashamed. I do literally nothing with um, ethical makeup and and fast fashion. I'm really uninformed. So if you know anything about it, I'd love to learn. But you more. don't. I feel like you don't. Um, you're not a fast fashion buyer. I'm not. Quite... I hate shopping, so I don't do a lot of shopping. <laughs> That's just a natural, environmentally friendly <laughs> attribute. So yeah, luckily it's not something that comes to me naturally. But yeah, no, I know very little about it, and I want to be more informed. It obviously is so important. Yeah, I think that. Well, I did one with um, Venetia Falcon, and she's more like sustain, <gasps> sustainability side. So now I try to rewear everything that I own a million times before I let myself buy something. So she new. never buys any new stuff, right? No, she's she only buys um, either sustainable, like ethical brands, or um, buys vintage or doesn't buy. That's okay. her first thing. She's like, either just the best thing is just don't buy anything, yeah. which we can all do, um, or rewear, reuse, recycle, etc. And do like clothes swaps with your friends, which is really fun. Um, so going forward, like with your work at the minute, what's your, yes. do you have a, your, have you got a documentary that you're working on right now? So I just found, I did an MA in documentary filmmaking last year Amazing. alongside all my other stuff, which was a bit mad, but um, it was, I sort of hated it at the time. And now I look back at it, I thought it was the most wonderful thing um, as I learned so much, but I made a graduation film for that. And I just found out a couple of weeks ago that it is, I can't talk about the specifics yet, but it's got into my favorite film festival. So well I'm done. I'm so mainly relieved, actually. Happy, but also just relieved that it got into a festival, which is That's really incredible. great in terms of um, moving from photography mm. into directing. Um, but so that was about loneliness in young people in the UK. I was adamant to do a UK-based oh, story. Oh, that's incredible. Do you know what's one of the biggest things people ask me to do a podcast about is loneliness? Oh, really? Massively. So mm. I was really interested in the internet and social media mm. and how we're, in theory, more kind of 
connected than ever, but really we're more isolated. Mm -hmm. And certainly the statistics show we're more lonely than ever. So one in four young people in 2017 said they were lonely some or all of the time. And I read an article in The Economist um, and it's sort of the headline was sort of uh, loneliness, the last taboo. You know, in the UK, we never Mm. talk about it. I mean, how many times have you actually we speak about so much now in terms of mental health, but you rarely hear someone just say, I feel desperately lonely. Yeah. Um, So it's kind of seemed to me this this taboo that no one spoke about. So I decided I'd make a film about it. And I I remember telling my teachers at at UCL where I did my master's, they were like, oh, God, it's not a very interesting topic. And how are you going to how are you going to do it? You know, and I thought, okay, I'll see you go and visit three characters who are lonely. But the problem is there's no change in the state of Mm. loneliness. It doesn't necessarily make an interesting film. So we had to be a bit more conceptual about it. Um, So Jack and I, who I made the film with, we set up an answer phone machine where young people could leave anonymous voicemails um, and talk about their experiences. And we had no idea if this would work. I mean, we shared shared the phone number online, so hopefully to a young audience. And within three hours, we had 50 voicemails Mm -hmm. and we ended up collecting about six hours of voicemails. And we realized it was incredible format because... People were leaving answer phone messages from the privacy of their own bedrooms or yeah. wherever they were. And so they were incredibly intimate and almost confessional. It was like a confessional box yeah. in, in, a, in a church. Um, and they would sort of speak and then they'd pause and you'd think they were coming to the end of their, their message. And then they'd just go on wow. and on. And so it was a, a window into this world. And incredibly moving. I mean, I literally cried the first night of listening to the voicemails. But the main message that came up over and over and over again was a lot actually about you know loneliness at university, which is mm. interesting because we're told university are meant to be the best years of our lives. Yeah. And I personally was desperately lonely at university. Um, and the other thing was, I feel lonely, loneliest when I'm surrounded by people. A lot of people said, I have great friends, I have great family, but I am so lonely oh when I'm gosh. in a room full of people, which is really interesting. So it's, absolutely not about physical isolation um it's very much a state of mind so the audio of these films these these audio testimonies um are kind of the basis of the film and then i used i shot it on 16 millimeter film um and using actors not in a sort of obviously dramatized way they're just sort of placed in the frame but for me it was the first time i directed and been fully in control of kind of the visuals so i've you know gone in photojournalism you arrive somewhere you kind of make try and make the best image that you can but with this it was just incredible to be able to choose the frame and put the actors where I wanted to so I really loved that and that was completely sort of groundbreaking moment for me that I want to do more directing so so incredible yes so that will be out soon that's going well it's going into festivals and then um hopefully it'll be online soon so um don't say if it kind of gives it away, but what was the general consensus is that is this is this um an epidemic due to our new way of like the, the idea that we can never be bored and we always have to fill our time and then if we're not completely stimulated all the time, is that where that loneliness is stemming from or was there not really a, a kind of a resolution to it? There wasn't really much of a resolution from um, from the voicemails, but I think my own personal opinion now that I look more into it is very basically that you know I think some theorists think this as well is that we really relied on each other in terms of survival mm. historically and so you were part of a community but you, you needed to be you totally relied on that community and now as we become so much more self-sufficient and our day-to-day lives are not about survival really mm. um, we have our basic basic needs um, we're totally losing touch with community mm. and a lot of our interactions are happening 
in the virtual online space um, and not in real life. So I think that's a big part of it. And it's a bit like with, um, Scotty said this on my previous podcast, but I brought up how we had the Minister for Loneliness, who I know, think we don't have now. And he was like, it's all because when David Cameron got rid of all like the youth um, hostels and all these places and said, oh, we'll have big society. And just because he called it something, hope that then people mm. would get together. But there is like, there's no enforced community, but there's, like you say, like everyone's quite individual. That's what um, is in my film, actually. There's a title card that says in, I think it was, God, I can't remember the exact date. It was January 2017 or 2018, maybe, that they brought in the Minister for Loneliness. Mm. And the Minister for Loneliness is the first one in the world. And I just think that's almost an Orwellian, like, dystopian yeah. thing, a Minister for Loneliness. It, um, is, but it, it's, it does. It's necessary now. Yeah. It's the, this, That same article on The Economist said... Um, Loneliness is as deadly as a smoking habit. Mm. You know, people literally die of loneliness. It's so fascinating, though. And do you have you heard of Wim Hof? It's kind no. of go on a bit of time. It's really interesting. So he's a Dutch. Um, I don't. Think he's an athlete. He basically is so interesting. He's fascinating. He does loads of stuff where he uses his breathing to um, manipulate his internal like homeostasis. So he can. He like did ever, climbed Everest in his boxes because he regulated his temperature through his breathing. Whoa. But he's done this because for years um, he swam in lakes and like would put his body in extreme temperatures that we would have done, I guess, like prior to having houses with heating and air conditioning and like ways to regulate us. So we're constantly in a, we never have to basically adjust. So he basically, what he's done is he now doesn't have to even use breathing, but he can tap into part of our brain. I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically like our crocodile brain that allows us to deal with like really extreme temperatures a basic reason i bring this up is just because what we're doing is we're creating such a comfortable little hamster and I, my biggest fear in life is that we are going to end up all locked into pods um living mm, through like virtual worlds and basically what he does is they, they so he's been doing this for years and those people thought that he was kind of like a bit of a trickster it was just like just him doing it and they put him into this like i think it's a freezing cold mri thing i say they as if it's like nasa i don't know who it was but it was someone some science people and they were like monitoring him to see if it was his breathing or to see if he was doing anything to manipulate this he just didn't get cold his temperature didn't drop his heart rate didn't change and they saw that this one part of his brain that we can never normally turn on anymore he'd just gone into a state of euphoria it basically feels like you're high which is what we would have been able to do prior when we before we had training that yeah because we don't need to survive anymore so much so that we've it's the desensitization of everything. Like every room is perfect. Well, it's not. We know that like yeah. the funniest bit about sexism is that all, you know, that all offices are set to be like the perfect temperature for men in a suit. No way. But not for women. So <laughs> women, are, it's always seven degrees too cold for women. Because it that was explains set, so much. Yeah, because they were made years ago when women weren't in offices. I literally read that. It's, there's so many funny statistics. It's not funny, but it is that is quite funny. <laughs> which is why they were like, in summer you'll see women with blankets and men like walking around in t-shirts because naturally we can't. I didn't know that well. But yeah, it's just, it's the more we talk about it, it's like we're just, we're just coming so far away from what it is to be human and to be real and to be natural. And I really hope, my, my, if my nightmare is that we're going to sit in a pod, my dream is that we're all going to kind of regress into like a very less sexist version of like the 70s and just all have, I don't know, do you, do you feel like that that's coming or like what do you see? Well, firstly, you've just totally reminded me. Did you watch Free Solo? Yes. Oh and you know God. the part where he gets his brain scanned Oh my and God, surprise, yeah. surprise, his He's ability got, like, to like get um, experience fear is like greatly yeah. reduced. I was like, oh, well, thank God there's some sort of scientific explanation. I sat with my knees and my jumper over oh my, my God, face. I'm terrified so of heights. I get terrified of heights. But I'm also I can't just more over. offended about how he treats his girlfriend than I know. anything else the whole week. Also, the film just like, 
putting my mm. leg filmmaker hat on is made by her because is without it? for me I think her emo- no 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 sorry as oh, in sorry. without her as a character oh right yeah she, like her the emotion she brings to the film mm. and their interact their relationship I thought was like a fascinating yes. part of the film and if Definitely. it had just been him like obsessed with this you know it wouldn't have been the same I thought she was total hero yeah you know and- as well as him she's like totally a hero that was an amazing film, though. I'm yeah. really excited because Matt really wanted to go and see it, and I wasn't sure, and I was like, oh my god, on the edge of my seat. It's unbelievable. Anyway, so back for your pod oh, yeah. thing, your pod theory. I can't remember what you said. Um, do what you do you think? think? Like, what do you... So say we come out the other side and everyone starts to be more... Like, the, the obviously, the goal would be everyone starts to believe in climate change, and then Trump goes away, and Brexit doesn't happen. And then <laughs> after that, <laughs> when you have your children running around... I think that we're there are like massive movements to take a few steps back. Mm. I think we it's funny because you always think about societal progression as like a positive uphill climb, but actually I think we've kind of what has gone wrong? I often think about this when I'm in rush hour on the tube and you look around. <laughs> yeah. Do you not think it's, it's like cattle? It sounds so ridiculous, but everyone's on their phone, everyone looks oh my knackered. God. And I'm like, we are some of the most privileged people mm. on the planet. It's rush hour in central London. What has gone? What has gone wrong? Yeah, like what have 100%. we? Where have we gone wrong? And for this to be like success? Well, it's capitalism, isn't it? Yeah. I listened to something the other day, and it was like the only reason that um, we don't value sleep is because no one's worked a way, worked out a way of making money off us sleeping, apart yes. from like bed companies, which isn't that. Big. Have you read the book Why We Sleep? Yes, I'm re- I haven't read finished it. Read it. I've read it. Amazing, literally one of the best things ever. So, so now I'm so scared if I don't sleep, I'm like, I'm gonna die. <laughs> But it's that weird thing of like Margaret. That's that whole thing of like even my mum's quite stoic. Like that's like I don't need sleep. I'm like you're gonna die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need to sleep. And that that's a really kind of hyper masculine mm. view of. I went to a fascinating talk this weekend for International Women's Day about um, you know inequality and sexism mm. in the workplace and how these markers of like success and like aggressive leadership and like no sleep and you know these hyper-masculine qualities, like, I think we're moving to, I hope we're moving towards a society where these more, in inverted commas, feminine, yeah. you know, kindness, compassion are are valued in the yeah. workplace. Why can't you be a kind leader? Of course you can. Yeah. And and what, you know, we, we want more flexible working hours. I think uh, one of the questions which I thought was really interesting, I'd never heard this perspective, was why are women not make, you know, why are there f- so few women entering at kind of graduate level and then there are none by the time executives or whatever. And normally the answer to that is they become mothers, they leave the workplace. Um, But another thing that someone said was a lot of women are looking at what it takes to be that super successful male executive. And they're like, do you know what? I don't want to be treated people like that. I want to sleep. I want to have family. I want to have a work-life balance. And that was really interesting to me that we don't actually value The the values that are held to be so important by by men who are so much older. This is so interesting because I, I literally about that. posted this on my story. This is basically what um, it might be. I'm going to read it because I read this and I was like, oh, it's so true. So this is in Daisy Buchanan's new book. But she says, um, in books and movies, it's become fashionable to talk about the importance of strong female characters. In lots of ways, this is admirable. It means that women see women who are three-dimensional, consistent, and have authentic voices, rather than women who turn up at the end of the day and say, together we've saved America from intergalactic aliens with machine guns. Now save me with your underpants gun. (laughs) The trouble is that the strong woman is becoming a reductive stereotype too. A strong woman on screen is a woman in a skirt suit who can earn a billion dollars a minute while taking seven phone calls then lets a single tear roll down her face, illuminated by the light of the microwave while she waits for her I have no personal life lasagna. 
Um, when we talk about strength, we're using an old-fashioned masculine measure. It doesn't serve anyone. When we praise women for their strength, we're usually congratulating them for not being so darn annoyingly female. The patriarchy loves it when women don't show their feelings because they usually cause great inconvenience. I so agree with that. So, And I, I was like, so right. And I don't know if you've noticed, and I hate to put this down, and I, I really hope <laughs> this is not a very coherent thought, but it just I just thought about it the other day. There are these amazingly sort of inspiring, I guess, adverts for Nike and stuff, but mm. they're all relying, like, strong women. How many adverts have you seen recently where there's, like, a, a female boxer and a female tennis player? And it, to me, it's still resting. It, it feels very, like, inauthentic mm. and insincere, and it still relies on, like, oh, you're a strong woman because you can, like, kick Just a ball a as hard as a thing. man, yeah. and you're still doing a, a traditionally masculine thing. And I guess in some ways that's really positive, but in others, it's it's to me, it's mm. it's getting a bit tired at the moment. There's every advert is kind of mimicking another, and I'm like, mm. but this is whether you know it's when it reaches advertising. I always get quite cynical because I just think it's there to make money, yeah. so it's always going to be anti the cause. Yeah, because yeah. anything that is there to take from you, yeah. your capital, your money is always going to be in in of itself. Um, in opposition to what it's trying to do. And I think you you are men mentioned earlier clicktivism and mm. sort of online activism, which I'm really wary to criticise because I think it is so powerful. All yeah. these, these derogatory things about like armchair activism. I think online activism is totally remarkable and, women, yeah. and we have so much evidence of the positive impact it's having. But I totally agree that it seems like brands are like jumping on the activism oh. bandwagon. International um, Women's Day this year was actually, I did work with Carl Beauty because I thought it was quite interesting about the amount of jobs that people, who brands who were never interested in me normally because they kind of knew I've got, I talk about this stuff every day, not mm. just on International Women's Day and like, you were, I was just a bit like, oh, you are really showing it your... It does feel a bit insincere. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, maybe we do need brands to get behind mm. things um, That's to the create thing. genuine change. So yeah. it, these things are so complicated. Because it's like, it's the question of intent and it's like sometimes I think whilst a 16-year-old girl wearing a feminist t-shirt from H&M probably isn't a feminist act, the fact that you can do that is is a yeah. sign of the times. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it still has its merits, just how pernickety you want to be about it, I guess. Did you see the Gillette advert? I'm now totally contradicting myself. But that was yeah. a really, I really liked it. I thought uh, it was amazing about toxic masculinity I was so surprised by it I thought yeah. it was so impactful but did you see everyone obviously did you see I always have to end up watching Good Morning Britain and Piers Morgan talk about did it did people criticise it oh my god went mad okay Absolutely tell me because I didn't follow this all, all the men were just like I can't believe this we can't even enjoy like Piers Morgan was just like masculinity is not toxic and but, but, but Piers Morgan really irritates me because I'm like you're actually quite an intellectual man I think he must just do it because it because it's his... I don't get him. I really I, don't understand. I'm totally baffled by it. I mean, I don't know how he has a job on primetime television. No. If 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 the media are meant to be like these liberal, progressive, forward-looking... Well, maybe they're not. We have lots of evidence that it's not. But I think he's really disappointing she, and I don't understand why he Neither has. do I. But then I also think within my echo chamber, I actually don't know anyone that thinks like that. And interestingly, I, I think he probably does represent a large portion of what people think. He's asking the questions that he thinks mm. the audience want to and ask. It, it gives me a window into to what the opposition because often to, all too often I do get caught in chamber and I'm like oh my god every single one of my friends is like flexitarian feminist blah 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 and then, then I get one comment because I put men need to do better and they go not all men and suddenly I'm bombarded by men telling me why they're yeah. good people I don't know and then there was this cynical argument that like women people men who have Gillette razors probably are married to a woman who does the shopping and probably buys their razors <laughs> so the advert was probably aimed very cleverly at their audience which is really sad um 
the so Jack, who got arrested for environmentalism, did an interview yesterday, and I was in the um, studio. It was with BBC's Victoria Derbyshire, who's normally amazing, but it was really interesting to see. And she actually apologized once she was off air to him, saying, "I'm really sorry, I had to challenge you," <gasps> but she was really tough on him. Um, to the extent, you know, saying, um, "What's why did you get arrested? Why you, do you think it's worth wasting police time?" Um, and then he, she, she sort of accused him of lying that he was saying that the government were lying about climate change. Ooh, it all got a little bit. What well, certainly felt heated when we were on the studio. Watching it back, it feels much calmer. But Jack turned around, uh, really ballsy, and I didn't know how it was going to go down, but it's been received quite well. But he turned around back to her and said, well, do you think the government are doing enough about climate change? And she was like really kind of vexed. And she said, well, it doesn't matter what I think. And Jack didn't say this in the interview, but we've talked about it at length after. I said, of course it matters what you think. Yeah. I mean, you are one of the leading broadcasters in the UK. How can these journalists mm. not be behind it? How can environmental activism, given the state of affairs that we're in, still be controversial? And of course it matters what she thinks. You know, when she challenges him and tries to make him look, uh, thank God he comes across really well, he mm. stayed calm, he expressed himself so well, but she really, I mean, it was a really tough interview. And, you know, we'll look back at that and think, what, why are we doing that? Because of the powers that be, because of money. Of course. And that's what's so sad, it's trickled down. That, and Totally, and in that... In that interview, she totally comes across as the establishment mm. and the elite. And it's really interesting to watch it back. I recommend checking it out. I will definitely have a look at that. Oh, this has been such a great chat. Have we done? How long have we been chatting? I don't like, know. It's over an hour. Oh, God. <laughs> no, but that's perfect. Do you ever, like, cut them down? Um, cut it down when I'm, like, rambling. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Everything you said, I'm actually completely in awe. I, I just, I, <laughs> I can't. I want, what I want to ask you, I actually do think you're one of the most inspiring people oh, I've ever met. Just so to be much. an absolute sycophant from thank across you. the desk. What things, what tips or advice in terms of maybe like something to do with environmentalism or something to do with the way that we can change? Because I think a really important thing is how do we how do we help people to, myself included, reframe our understanding of what it means to be a citizen and also like understanding refugee? If you know what I mean, like reframe what you think you are and your existence in the... In the- um, I think... Just my note would be like engage with issues, whatever mm. it is, whatever you feel passionate about. Don't look away. Don't turn a blind eye. Um, commit yourself. You don't have to be a perfect environmentalist, a perfect feminist, whatever those mm. categories mean. You know, I really think like whatever you can do, however big or small, can have an impact, whether it's online or in the real world. Um, so nothing. Yeah, no act is is unimportant. Yeah, oh, I love that. And if people want to find you online to follow you and listen to you and. I guess so on Instagram. What? Um, so just Alice Ad. So a- Alice written Alice, and then <laughs> my surname is A E D Y. Are you anywhere? Is there anything else or anywhere else you want my to go? My website, I guess. But no, my I would be embarrassed if you went to my website. But yeah, follow me on Instagram and come and. Amazing! Chat. I'll put you in the description box well below so you can find her. Great. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I will see you next week. Thank Bye. You. Bye. 